Good morning. It's January 31st, 2021, and this is Emily Joan Elliott, Managing Editor of East Lansing Info, here with Aaron Souza, the Interim Dean of the Human College of Medicine, recording a special episode of our podcast, East Lansing Insider. So how are you this morning, Aaron? I'm doing well, Emily, and yourself? Good. I just wanted to thank you for joining us. My pleasure. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your career trajectory. Um, What led you to becoming the interim dean of the College of Human Medicine? Sure. I'm a general internist, which uh, means I take care of sick adults. And most of my clinical work is uh, at a hospital. And so I I really enjoy taking care of folks who are sick and working with their families. And my other part of my job is I'm a medical educator. So starting in 2005, I, I, um, took, I was given responsibility for the MD program and uh, the curriculum and spent a long time working on uh, uh, how our curriculum works, how, um, how our students learn in communities across the state. We have seven campuses across the state from the UP to Southfield, soon also in Detroit at Henry Ford Health System. And in that job, I was the Senior Associate Dean for Academic Affairs. And both when Marsha Rapley moved on to um, Virginia Commonwealth and then when Norm Beauchamp went on to be the Executive Vice President for Health Sciences at MSU, I took the role of Interim Dean. Okay. And can you explain to our readers what an internist is? Yeah, we are. It's a it's a specialty of medicine, uh, and it is funny because my when I was dating Alice, uh, she asked me what I wanted to do, and I said medicine, and she said, "Well, yeah, of course." But medicine is considered a specialty of of doctoring. Um, it's called internal medicine. And it's the field that has general internal medicine, which is the general internist part, but that's where cardiology and infectious disease and oncology, all those specialties come out of internal medicine. And we really are sort of, as a group, designed to take care of people who are sick. There are certainly lots of primary care physicians who are who are internists, but we were trained a lot in hospitals and trained to take care of complex patients. And so it, it's a large, it's a large specialty in medicine. Um, and, uh, and that, you know, we, I really like the kind of work that we do. Great. Well, one of the reasons we had you on is we've been getting questions from the community about the vaccine rollout, what the options are for getting vaccinated, and about these new emerging strains, particularly from Britain, South Africa, Brazil. And I also heard that there might be a specific strain within Los Angeles. So I was wondering if you could explain to our readers how different strains develop. Um, How do we wind up with these various strains? Sure. It's basically the same process as any evolution that happens. Viruses, bacteria, larger, more complicated organisms like people and um, rodents and mollusks and everybody, we get mutations in our, in our case, DNA. In, some, in the case of um, these viruses, RNA. And those little changes may mean something or may not mean anything. 
occasionally they change something in the virus that allows it to reproduce faster or uh, better. And then that mutation, since it reproduces faster, becomes a larger and larger part of the pool of viruses, and eventually it takes over. And we've had that happen a couple of times already. So there was the original strains that came to the U.S. have since been supplanted. Um, Early on, there was a different strain on the East Coast, another one on the West Coast. Um, But uh, it's just straight up evolution. And in the case of these strains, the mutations that are happening happen on the spike protein. And they happen in the part of the protein that binds to the receptor on our cells, which is ACE2. Um, And it just binds better. So that probably means that it takes less time um, and a higher percentage of viruses can bind to a cell and they get into the cell more easily or larger numbers of viruses get into the cell and that leads to more replication of the virus. So in the case, in particularly of uh, B117, which is the one that swept the UK, that one does replicate faster. Um, It's been found in Ann Arbor. I think we have every reason to believe that it's all around us, um, and we need to be thinking about that. The B1135, which is the variety that the variant that swept South Africa, same sort of same place the mutations are on that spike protein it has the concerning feature that some of the neutralizing antibodies from people who have been otherwise already sick with covid-19 and some of the at least some of the vaccines um and the antibodies from some of the vaccines also don't bind as well now that's a we can talk a little bit about what that means but the it's concerning for how well, um, you know, how well our, our current processes will be for stopping that variant, um, which is already in the U.S., but there's no evidence it's here. But I should say the they were two non-travelers in, in South Carolina, so, um, so we have reason to be worried, I suppose. Yeah, my parents live in North Carolina, close to the South Carolina border. So they would often go shopping there and they're not doing that anymore. But they kind of just suspect it's probably nearby in their community as well. Um, Are these mutations more deadly? Are there extra precautions we should be taking to keep ourselves safe? Yeah, that's one of the interesting things. They aren't more deadly so far. There's no evidence of that. Um, And overall, uh, doctors and nurses uh, have been doing better and better at taking care of COVID-19 patients. And so there's every reason to think that that will continue. But uh, there's no evolutionary pressure for viruses to become more deadly. Um, the pressure is to produce more virus. That's how they're more successful. And it could be, you could imagine a scenario where being able to produce, producing more virus faster in more cells would also be more deadly, but there's, but that isn't what has happened. It hasn't made them more deadly that we can tell, at least at this point. And, you know, so much of dealing with this pandemic is saying at this point, or based on the data we have, I mean, it's a, phenomenally new experience for all of us. And so we're doing our best with the data we can have. 
And in that sense, it, these viruses are, have a different evolutionary pressure than, say, a carnivore, right, where being a better hunter really does lead to better survival. But viruses aren't hunters. They're just about reproducing. So um, they, they have no agency. They have no purpose for killing us. They're their chemical drive is to reproduce more. So if they can re reproduce more and spread better, they will, um, they'll be more successful. In fact, there are people who have theorized that viruses that are more deadly, you know, struggle to reproduce more. And, uh, and so there's actually an, a pressure against that. But for every example like that, there's something like smallpox where, you know, it doesn't matter. It, moves so fast, spreads so well, then kills so many people eventually that it's both successful or was both successful and deadly. Mm -hmm. I've also heard at least the British strain referred to as more contagious. So if I'm doing things like wearing a mask and maintaining six feet of physical distance between people outside my household, is that still enough to keep me safe? That's an excellent question. And, and the being contagious has to do with how, how well both it gets transmitted, like through the air to you, mm -hmm. but also how much inoculum, how much virus you need to be exposed to, to, to contract the disease. And every disease is a little different. It, it takes a quite a bit of cholera to get somebody sick. It takes you know, very little pink eye for somebody to pick up pink eye. So everyone is a little bit different. The fact that it, that these variants, the B117, which was in the UK and B1135 from the, that was first found in South Africa, bind better probably means you need a smaller inoculum. And that would mean that they're more contagious also. Uh, I think, think that it probably means at some level um, we need to be more careful um, mm. washing our hands uh, spatially distancing wearing a mask is all the more important there's no data to say that we need to double mask or something like that but I think if I were a frontline worker I would be in surgical masks or if I could get a n95 and an n95 and cloth or you know, I, I think it's perfectly reasonable for people to say, you know, I, I need to be as careful as, as I can reasonably be. It, it's nobody, I think there's a lot of perception that this isn't a bad disease. And it's true that the mortality is not high considering how many people get sick, but it is real. And the disability that comes off of um, COVID-19 is real. So I, I took care of a fair number of folks over the last nine months in the hospital with COVID-19. And uh, it is a slow, difficult disease to get over. Getting the pneumonia destroys parts of your lungs that um, may never come back. The vascular problems that people get are real. And there's more and more evidence of antibodies against the body, which is the sort of core the core mechanism of autoimmune diseases. So I, I people should avoid this. Um, there's really, there's really no reason to put yourself at risk. So I'll, I'll, I wear a surgical mask in public. I mm -hmm. keep six feet away. 
I don't wear an N95 in public. Um, and I, I wash my hands and I stay away from folks. Okay. Um, I know in the United States, we've kind of put a lot of hope into the vaccine, putting an end to this pandemic. Um, so that's, I wanted to transition to a talk about that. Can you tell us a little bit about the vaccines that have been approved? Sure. So there are the two that have been approved in this country, Moderna and Pfizer, are both highly effective, very safe vaccines. Millions of people have gotten them. And, uh, you know, the number of people who have had uh, allergic reactions is very small, and those have been well managed. And there really have been, they've turned out to be remarkably safe um, at this point. Their technology is kind of new. It's been around for about 10 or 12 years. They've tried it in animals and some other human diseases. Basically, they take the messenger RNA, which is um, how our body takes the instructions from DNA and transmits those instructions to those the parts of the cell that make proteins. And they encapsulate it, and that's what gets injected into you. Your cells take that in and treat that mRNA, that messenger RNA, just like the messenger RNA that comes out of your, your the nucleus of your cells, and then makes the proteins. And it's fundamentally what the what the viruses do, also. Um, and also, it's the same fundamental mechanism of live attenuated virus vaccines, uh, like like measles. The and there are a couple of other vaccines coming out that use mechanisms like that. So. Um, the Johnson and Johnson and uh, AstraZeneca ones use some modified virus, adenoviruses, which also cause common colds. Um, but they have uh, DNA, as it turns out, in those um, to make the spike protein. And uh, in that sense, they're similar to lots of other vaccines that people get. The instructions get into the cell. Your cell makes the uh, the spike protein presents it, and then your immune system recognizes that as as a invader and creates antibodies and memory cells to to go after anything with that that spike protein, including the virus. And then uh, Novavax, there's data that just came out of out about that. That's a purified protein vaccine, like the tetanus vaccine that people get uh, about every ten years. And that one, they put, they treat the protein in particular ways to try to make it such that the immune uh, system notices it, produces antibodies, and produces um, memory cells as well. There's pretty good data that all of those are meaningfully protective, which means people should get them. Someday we'll figure out whether or not one vaccine is better than another. But at this point, my counsel would be to get vaccinated with whatever vaccine you can get. And then later, if it turns out to be vaccines that are better, you could get vaccinated with one of those. So um, the people who are getting vaccinated right now in the community are mostly getting Pfizer. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had my first uh, as a physician. I I was relatively late because I'm not seeing patients again for another month or so. But um, if you can, I, I 
anyway, I recommend that people get vaccinated. One of the concerns is that uh, there's a fair amount of vaccine hesitancy, which is, of course, why I'm talking to you. I want to try to provide some reassurance and encourage people to get vaccinated. It is probably, um, it is one of clearly across the population, our, our most powerful tool for really stopping the pandemic. I think that the way that you are safest is to modify your behavior, but we eventually want to get back to some semblance of a regular life and community. And for that, it's going to take a vaccine. Okay. Um, so can you tell us maybe to alleviate fears people have? Cause something I hear as a concern is that these vaccines were developed extremely quickly. And my understanding is it might be the quickest a vaccine has ever been developed. So what did the trials look like? Did they have the same rigor as other vaccines we might have received? Yeah, so they, uh, it was quick. Um, and, uh, but they went through all the usual steps. So they first tried them in, in some animals um, in very small trials. Then they did phase one trials in people last spring, um, where they mostly are looking for safety questions. Then early in the summer, they did phase two trials, which are all about trying to figure out dose and how often you have to give it, if you have to give it more than once. And then late summer into fall, they did phase three trials. Um, both Pfizer and Moderna had trials with about 40,000 people each in them. Half the people got the vaccine, half got a placebo, and then they looked to see the differences between the two groups. Because the virus really took off about the same time, it took less time to get enough sick people to figure out whether or not the vaccines were working. And in both cases, when you compare the both Moderna and Pfizer, when you compare the, the um, people who got vaccine to the placebo in the phase uh, three trials, not only were there I mean, was the disease um, decreased by 95%, but uh, severe, severe disease was essentially eliminated in the people who had vaccine, which is just a huge, a huge impact for us. If we could keep people from getting severely sick, that really makes all the difference in the world. So uh, they went through all the same steps they did get, uh, the FDA gave them emergency approval, which is a little different than we would usually be using, but it is an emergency. Um, thousands and thousands of people have gotten them. And um, so there's a good safety profile. Now millions of people have gotten these vaccines and done well. I'll, I'll say that both, um, that the mRNA version, which has seemed kind of new, it's really been around for more than a decade. They've been using this um, in trials to treat um, a whole vari a variety of diseases from cancer to, um, to other autoimmune conditions. And they haven't panned out so well for that. But they did start doing work on, um, on other viruses, including SARS, which was another coronavirus, mm -hmm. and MERS, and Ebola. And they tried... Um, this vaccine in, in uh, people then. So they actually know a lot about how it works and its safety. 
how to uh, use small enough doses to cause fewer side effects. So it's a, they're actually remarkably well known, although it's the first time these technologies have been used in, in vaccines. But like I said, fundamentally, from the point of view of the cell, the mRNA version is not that different than virus, or vaccines using attenuated viruses that we have used for years. So you mentioned side effects. I was wondering if you could tell us what the side effects are. I guess we would know the most about Pfizer and Moderna. So what they are and why vaccines often cause side effects. Like what does my arm being sore, me feeling tired mean? Yeah. So the by far the most common side effect from any vaccine is just soreness at the injection site. And uh, anytime you get uh, an injection in the muscle, which is where these go, it causes the muscle fibers to have to spread out a little bit and and uh, that causes a, a local reaction right there. Um, so, and that causes the soreness. The other thing, the whole point of giving a vaccine is to ramp up the immune system uh, because you want it to trigger the production of antibodies and you want it to trigger the production of memory cells that will produce antibodies and, and go after virus in the future. And that requires some amount of inflammation. And uh, we all have experience with inflammation, whether it's because we've uh, burned ourselves or had uh, strained something or pulled something or gotten a sunburn or um, had a little bit of an infection. That area of redness around a, you know, a small infection or something like that, that is your body ramping up to take care of the damage and your it's your immune system ramping up and uh, that causes you to feel a little bit sick. So it's pretty common for people to feel a little tired. Maybe, you know, uh, fever turns out to be relatively rare for the first shot. It's rare for the second shot in the case of Moderna and Pfizer, but it does happen. Mm. Um, but people can feel kind of crummy. It's the same thing that happens when people get flu shots, which, by the way, cannot cause the flu. It's impossible for it to cause the flu. But you can feel kind of sick because your immune system has ramped up, which is not that different than what happens when you have the flu. Your immune system ramps up. But in the case of the flu shot and some other vaccines, you know, you sense that your immune system is going even though you don't have a true infection. So the same then would be true for the COVID-19 vaccines. My body is mounting a reaction, but I shouldn't have reason to believe that I actually got COVID-19 from the vaccine, correct? You would not get COVID vaccine, or you would not get COVID-19 from the vaccine, but we do, there are people who, there's so much COVID-19 around that you can get the vaccine in the morning, not have had time to develop immune response and get COVID in the afternoon. Okay. That does happen. So um, there's, it takes days to weeks to, to mount a protective immune response. And, and I'll say that these are incredibly, for vaccines, remarkably effective, 95% effective after two shots. But if you're 95% effective, there's still some people who will get sick. So it's not, you know, magic. It's really, really good. 
Um, so uh, there are a small number of people who get sick even after being fully vaccinated. But the nice thing about these vaccines so far is in the trials, nobody got seriously sick. Nobody was hospitalized and nobody nobody got seriously sick. So the um, the vaccines are highly protective. You could easily have side effects that make you feel crummy, especially after the second shot for Pfizer and um, Moderna. Um, and until you're protected, you know, your chances of having COVID are just the same as they were the day before. Mm-hmm. How long should I anticipate side effects lasting for? Uh, the sore arm lasts a day or so. Um, most people feel better within two days. The same is true of the sort of inflammatory punkiness that people feel uh, either after their first shot or the second shot. Um, and that that takes, it doesn't last more than a day or two usually. Okay. Um, so if we have a listener who's still on the fence about getting the vaccine, there's some hesitancy. Is there anything else you'd like them to know to encourage them to consider getting the vaccine? You know, I think that people have to be honest about what their hesitancy is about and and how we would address it. Some people have other conditions and they think there's this, there's been this perception that the immune ramp up that happens from vaccines might be bad for other conditions. And that just isn't true. And it's particularly not true in COVID-19 where uh, people with underlying health conditions are even more at risk than than otherwise healthy people. So I think that people who are afraid that the vaccine will make their underlying health conditions worse um, absolutely should get the vaccine. I think that uh, if you are concerned about or you're... I suspect that people who are paying attention to the conspiracy theories are probably not listening to Eli. But um, if you happen to be, it, it doesn't cause infertility. Uh, there's no biological mechanism for that to happen from this. Um, millions of people have gotten it. Everybody who is, um, and, and physicians and nurses and people like that have been lining up to get it. Uh, I think that I don't want to pretend that, that um, many of us didn't think a little bit about whether or not to sign up for a new vaccine and look at the data carefully. Um, I certainly had conversations with people about, well, what do you think? What do you think of the data? And after looking at it and and considering it, it becomes really clear. It's very safe. And, um, and that's really the key question, right? Is it safe? And, and so then after that, you're getting the vaccine in the hopes that you were one of the people who will benefit. And, um, huge number of people will benefit from from these vaccines you your family members and your neighbors so even if you're not personally worried about getting it um, the people are you will you can protect the people around you almost certainly okay um, I was wondering if we could speak a bit about vaccination locally um, for the community where can people, well, first of all, at this moment, who's eligible to be vaccinated? I know we have a hierarchy of needs. So where are we in that hierarchy? Yeah. And I know you had Linda Vale on recently, um, who's almost certainly a better expert about this than I am. But um, so we're somewhere between 1B and 1C. So 1A is 
people who are going to be around folks with COVID, mostly the healthcare providers and, and a lot of those folks have already been vaccinated or partial, like me, halfway through the vaccine protocol. And then 1B includes a whole bunch of frontline people like teachers. And then the state also included people over 65. Um, so we're really somewhere in that 1B plus dipping down to include people who are 65 and older. There are right now um, Sparrow and the Ingham County Health Department are two of the biggest vaccinators in town. There are um, some other people, the, the big pharmacies, Walgreen and CVS have been giving them to nursing homes. And then there are some other institutions like Michigan State who have been cleared to do vaccines as soon as there's enough supply. So right now, there's not enough supply for everybody who's qualified to be doing vaccination to be doing them. So I would pay attention to what's available through Sparrow and the Ingham, especially the Ingham County Health Department. Great. And for our listeners, Eli has covered that. And when we post this podcast, we'll share that in the little write-up as well. So you could have links for further information on Sparrow and Ingham County Health Department. And I got to say, I, uh, I know that getting signed up is a, is a little bit of a struggle sometimes for folks because, um, well, we just don't, there isn't enough vaccine around, but the Ingham County um, system at the MSU Pavilion um, is incredibly smooth and efficient. Yes, I know. We When we had Linda on last week, she said they were vaccinating about a thousand people a day. And what's slowing things down is just the supply of vaccine. If they were to get more vaccines, they'd be able to vaccinate more people. It's not a staffing issue. Right. right. Um, so you had mentioned MSU is approved, but they currently aren't receiving any vaccines yet. Once they receive vaccines, who will MSU be vaccinating? Yeah, so um, their their goal is to be able to vaccinate people generally. Um, and um, I don't know that I should, I, I can't, I don't think they have, um, I don't think they can publish yet plans beyond that because they're still mm -hmm. trying to figure out how to do that. Okay. Um, so if I sign up for Sparrow or Ingham County Health Department, do I get to choose which which vaccine I'll get? You do not. You get the vaccine that's there. And the other common question is if you get it, because we're, we're getting into snowbird season, right, where people may have gotten vaccinated in Florida and then come up here, uh, you, you really should get the vaccine done, um, your second shot, wherever you got your first shot. Because, uh, first of all, it's, they're trying to manage the supply. But second, you, you really don't know what they're going to have. So you need to make sure that um, sites are being careful about that. You should get vaccinated this, in the same place for, the, for both shots. So if I got a first dose as Pfizer, my second dose cannot be Moderna, for example. Absolutely true. And... And, you know, you should try to keep it relatively close to the timeline. So, you know, the timeline is three weeks for one of them, four weeks for the other for the second shot. It's almost certainly biologically the case. Well, we know that you can, there's a little bit of leeway in there. But if the leeway gets too long, um, 
we may well be so it may make it easier for some resistant variants to survive um so it's good to try to follow the protocol as much as you can if if something happens and you can't make your date you're not that's not but you know a tragedy you're not putting everybody at risk but try to get back in there as soon as you can okay um so we've established that in this area Pfizer is the vaccine that you probably will receive but i heard that Johnson and Johnson released some information and they're a one dose and the number the like percentage seems a little bit less than Pfizer and Moderna um, so what happens if you're told you're getting Johnson and Johnson and it's less, it seems at least less effective, what concerns might someone have? Uh, if you get a chance to get a Johnson and Johnson vaccine, I would take it. Um, it's just about 90% effective. Um, that's huge. So, um, you know, the, I don't know the difference between 90 and 95 is going to make, you know, i I don't know that for you that that's going to be that big a difference. Mm-hmm. And um, if it turns out later that, uh, you know, people, that there is a, a difference between them, we'll have to sort that out. But for now, it's pretty clear that some coverage is better than no coverage. And, um, you know, I, I think if you get a chance to get vaccinated, you should get vaccinated. So... Say in three or four years, we realize one of the vaccines really wasn't doing such a great job. Would people then have an opportunity to get the the more effective one? Yeah. And in fact, all of the vaccine makers are already tweaking their vaccines to make uh, ones that apply to the variants um, Mm -hmm. just as well. So one of the remarkable things that particularly about the mRNA uh, technology, but also the DNA in the adenovirus of, of um, AstraZeneca and Johnson and Johnson is that they uh, are easy to change Mm -hmm. because they just have to, we actually, they can synthesize that mRNA. Uh, It only takes, it takes a very short amount of time for them to do that. Um, and then it can enter testing and, and then potentially come out. So if there is a new variant that comes in and, and you know, like Novavax worked at about 90% in Britain, but only about 50% in South Africa. So if it turns out that, you know, some strains are really quite a bit, and even the 50% vaccine is the sort of thing that we would we would encourage people to get, although I understand why you might prefer to get something with 90 or 95% effectiveness. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, they're on the path to making vaccines that will, will stop those variants. It may well be that we have to go through and vaccinate some people again, mm-hmm. with something different. There's no reason um, to think that uh, getting a second vaccine will be more dangerous or have a lower safety protocol than than uh, than we're seeing now. So you mentioned that some of the big drug makers are tweaking the vaccines. Is it should we anticipate that we might have to get a booster shot in the future say if one variant really takes off and becomes more prevalent in the United States? It's possible. 
Johnson and Johnson already has a trial for two shots. So they are a one shot um, protocol right now, which is great because you can get through a lot more people, you know, with fewer doses. So that's a huge thing for the public health part. But they are looking at what a booster or second shot would do. The other thing is that coronaviruses are just different. So it's they're not like measles. Um, they they uh, they have a whole different system, and and it's not even clear what natural immunity after you get sick what it means for the future. We it's probably the case that we all there are four endemic coronaviruses in the human population that we pretty much all get as kids. And then the next, the second, second time we get it, it's the common cold. And the third time we get it, it's the common cold. And presumably coronavirus, this COVID-19 virus will turn into a fifth endemic human coronavirus. And most people will get it when they're a kid. And uh, then it'll just turn into a common cold in the future. But for those of us who are around as it just comes into the human population where it turns out to be deadly, um, we may have to get some boosters and some additional shots to keep people safe to prevent the most serious disease. And we won't know that until um, we have a lot more experience and a lot more time goes by. Okay. And I think this will be my final question for you is say, someone has one dose of the vaccine or even two and it's a month after their second dose, what precautions do they need to be taking when they leave their home? We think that people should still be spatially distancing. They should still be wearing a mask. Um, They should still be washing their hands because it's not a hundred percent effective. And certainly until many, many, many more people are vaccinated and we're much closer to herd immunity and the number of cases is way down and the virus really doesn't have a group of people to live in anymore. Until that point, it's still all around. And uh, there are um, still, you know, a chunk of people who get sick with it and can spread it to somebody else. Uh, we still are waiting for data on how much those sort of how how much spread there is from people who are vaccinated to other folks, because it certainly is theoretically possible. We just don't have much data about it. So we all need to behave in the same careful way after we're vaccinated as before we're vaccinated until the cases really start to go down and the number of people with COVID-19 in the community is, is really down to a small number. Okay. Well, that is all the questions I had for you today, Aaron. I wanted to thank you once again for joining us. Thank you. And I hope people will wear their masks seriously, wash their hands, spatially distance, stay home if they're sick, and uh, get vaccinated when they can. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Emily. Thank you, Emily.